Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Hemophilia A, Strategies for Improving Long-Term Holistic Management, Adherence, and Quality of Life is sponsored by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello, and welcome to this educational activity titled Hemophilia A, Strategies for Improving Long-Term Holistic Management, Adherence, and Quality of Life. My name is Miguel Escobar, and I'm a hematologist at the University of Texas in Houston. And I am joined today uh, by two other hematologists, Dr. Cindy Lessinger, Professor of Medicine, uh, at the Tulane University School of Medicine and is director of the Louisiana Center for Bleeding and Clotting Disorders. And with Dr. Guy Young, uh, who is professor of pediatrics and the director of the Hemostasis and Thrombosis Center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles at the University of Southern California. So today we'll be uh, reviewing the role and evolution of uh, currently approved prophylaxis therapy in hemophilia A as well as consider clinical value, real world experience, and patient quality of life factors uh, when advising care management options for these patients. First, a disclaimer and disclosure indicating that we might be discussing off-label use of a prop agents or agents that are in development, our financial disclosure information, And here are the learning objectives for this activity. The first part of this presentation, I will be giving an overview of hemophilia A. Hemophilia A and B are rare inherited bleeding disorders that are characterized by the deficiency of either factor eight or factor nine. You know, while the history of hemophilia dates back by to the second century, uh, you know, it's only been a description really of hemophilia appear probably at the beginning of the 19th century. Now with the discovery of the anti-hemophilic globulin in the, uh, in the middle of the 20th century, this really kind of opened up the, the uh, development of initially what it was the cryoprecipitate and then the factor eight and the factor nine concentrates. You know, unfortunately in the 70s and early 80s, we have the tragic consequences of HIV and hepatitis. Uh, and then after this, um, you know, the high purity plasma concentrates and recombinant products, you know, uh, were developed and really revolutionized the treatment of hemophilia uh, because, you know, we started adopting home therapy as well as prophylaxis, which has, you know, dramatically improved the quality of life of our patients and also the expectancy of lives of people with hemophilia. More recently, you know, we have uh, with the improve in technology extended half-life products. In the last few years, we have non-therapy or non-replacement therapy products. And we also have other molecules, including gene therapy, that are under investigation for the possible, uh, you know, even cure of hemophilia. There is a survey that is um, done by the Welfare Asian of Hemophilia every year or every two years. And we can uh, see that the mean cap per capita use of factor eight, it could be quite substantial in some countries like the developed countries. But we can also see that even within the same continent, there's a big disparity, a big gap in the utilization of factor, and certainly this is mostly due to financial restraints from some of the countries. Now, in this same survey, uh, some of the information that gets reported here is the percentage of individuals that are on prophylaxis around the world. And we can clearly see that the majority of the countries actually are doing very well in terms of prophylaxis for the pediatric population. But when we look at the percentage population above the age of 18 that is on prophylaxis, we see that there is a substantial drop in that amount of prophylaxis. 
I also like to make emphasis on the recent guidelines that got published by the World Federation of Hemophilia. These guidelines got published in the year 2020 and includes 12 very detailed chapters on the management of hemophilia. So I really encourage you to go to the World Federation of Hemophilia website and downloads. It's in different, also different um, languages uh, and take a look at this uh, recommendation. I'll, and I'll talk briefly about some of the recommendations that have been done here. Now getting more into the topic of prophylaxis. You know, this is the standard of care nowadays for our patients, at least with severe phenotype. And, you know, it could be what we call an all definition of prophylaxis, which I, in my opinion, it was quite vague. But I think more recently, there's been some changes to this definition. And now we can say that prophylaxis is the regular administration of therapeutic products. We're not only talking here now, only clotting factor, since we have non-replacement therapy. And it is aimed at maintaining hemostasis to prevent bleeding. But in addition, you know, it said that prophylaxis should enable people with hemophilia to lead healthy and active lives, including participation in most physical activities similar to the non-hemophilic population. And I think this is very important because now our patients with hemophilia are being compared to the general population. Now, there are definitions of prophylaxis in regards to you know, the type of prophylaxis. I'm not gonna go really in detail, but for example, primary prophylaxis is that regular continuous prophylaxis that is started, you know, before the onset of joint disease. Ideally is to start these patients before the age of three. Then we got secondary prophylaxis, uh, usually is initiated, you know, after at least two bleeds the patient has had into their joints. And then tertiary prophylaxis, which is, Again, the regular continuous prophylaxis in individuals that already have joint disease. It's also important to mention that prophylaxis can be defined according to the intensity. There are different types of prophylaxis that can be administered, uh, anywhere from high dose, intermediate dose, or the low dose prophylaxis that we see is used uh, sometimes in many of the developing countries that have restraint or they have some limitations uh, on the um, on the factor uh, utilization. Now there are many factor eight concentrates now available. We have the standard half-life products, and more recently, the extended half-life products. There are different cell lines that are used to develop these concentrates and different constructs. Most of them are going to be either full length or B domain deleted, and some of them have you know some different features than others. And the half-life is also going to have some variability that I will discuss further in the talk. Now, the different strategies to extend the half-life of the recombinant clotting factors. There's the single-chain products. There's the albumin fusion. Um, and there's the, also the FC fusion to the immunoglobulin, or also the utilization of a PEG molecule that is attached to the factor eight, again, to extend the half-life of these products. Now, it's important to note that the half-life prolongation of factor eight is gonna be limited by the dependence of factor eight on the von Willebrand. When we look at the different PKs that have been done in all the molecules now that have been approved or have been in clinical trials, we can see that all the different variables like area under the curve, the half-life and the clearance is quite variable among the products. And I think this is important to know. Now, in regards to the efficacy of the extended half-life products, in my opinion, I think they are as effective, and I think the data shows that, as the standard half-life products. If we look at some of the molecules that are undergone the clinical trials, both for pediatric, for adolescents, and for adults, the annualized bleeding rates, the annualized spontaneous bleeding rates are actually quite low. It could be anywhere from zero to maybe close to 2.0. And again, there is gonna be some variability because the studies are not equally done. Now, another point of interest is what is that minimal level that is gonna be effective for our patients to prevent bleeding? 
And I think this has been, we've been debating this for many years. I think we should be getting away from maintaining patients with trough levels of 1%. I, you know, there's plenty of data now supporting that these individuals continue to have spontaneous bleeds. And there's also data supporting now that the more time our patients remain with levels below 1%, the higher the risk of having bleeding. Now, if we look at the guidelines that just came out from the wall hemophilia, they actually suggest that maybe maintaining levels above 3%, maybe close to the range of 3 to 5%, should be our goal for prophylaxis. Now, there's data even supporting that levels maybe above 12% should be the ideal when patients really uh, with severe phenotype stop bleeding. And I'll talk briefly about one of the studies that has been recently published where they discuss, you know, maintaining much higher trough levels when compared maybe to the 1% to 3%. Now, you guys are probably all familiar with the joint outcome study. It's a very uh, important study. It was done in the United States where they took very young children uh, with severe hemophilia A this, and uh, they put them in prophylaxis, 25 units per kilo every other day, and compare them to episodic on-demand treatment. This was a randomized controlled trial. And again, uh, they started very early, and they monitored these uh, this children both clinically and with MRIs of the joints. And what they find here was that, you know, children uh, with severe hemophilia that initiated prophylaxis prior to the age of two and a half, had much more reduced joint damage at the age of six, which is when the study ended, compared to those individuals that were treated with episodic treatment. Now, when these kids reached the age of six, they saw that 93% of those kids that were in the prophylaxis had normal index joint structure compared to only 55% of those individuals that were in the episodic treatment. Now, there was a continuation of this study called a joint outcome continuation study that they took a subgroup of these individuals from the initial study, and they evaluated early versus delayed prophylactic effect on the long-term joint health. Uh, and they followed them until the age of 18. This was more observational, and it was a partially retrospective study as well. And they looked again at MRI, and also at the joint physical examination scores and the annualized bleeding rates. There were 37 of 65 of those patients that were enrolled in this study. Now, at the end of this study, what they found when they looked at the MRI, these individuals, about 77% of the individuals had osteochondral damage uh, when they compared, for example, from the patients that started prophylaxis much earlier. That was only 35% of those individuals had osteochondral damage uh, when they looked at the uh, imaging studies. So again, a conclusion from these studies is pretty much an initiation of prophylaxis prior to the age of two and a half is critical to be able to protect the joints of patients with a severe phenotype. Now, those even who delay initiation of prophylaxis have higher bleeding rates and definitely ended up with joint damage. So going back to the guidelines, one of the recommendations from, um, from this publication is that for pediatric patients with severe hemophilia A or B, early initiation with a clotting factor concentrate, either the standard or an extended half-life or other hemostatic agent or agents prior to the onset of joint disease and ideally should be started before the age of three. Now, in addition, they also make the recommendation that for adolescents and adults with hemophilia that already show evidence of joint damage and that have not been on prophylaxis, the Wolf Federation of Hemophilia recommends starting tertiary prophylaxis in order to reduce the number of hemarthrosis, uh, breakthrough bleeding, and 
to slow down the progression of hemophilic arthropathy. And I think this goes back to my initial comment where we see that our adolescents and especially our adults and older adults are probably not getting enough prophylaxis to prevent bleeding. Now, it's also important to note that there is high interpatient variability when it comes to dosing and also when we look at the terminal half-life of factor eight. There are many studies that showed that even when patients get the same product at the same dose, their PK studies could differ substantially. And I think this is why it is important probably to individualize management of patients with hemophilia. There was a recent study uh, that shows that the terminal half-life of factor eight is actually depending on age, is dependent on the concentrate type, on the blood group, and is also dependent on inhibitories story. So if that patient had a history of an inhibitor, there is gonna be a, uh, most likely a decrease on the half-life of the factor eight. So again, the here is when those population-based PK modeling studies can be very valuable to be able to estimate the half-life of factor eight in, in patients with hemophilia. Now, when we talk about personalized prophylaxis, I think there are three big variables that need to, we need to take into account. Uh, one certainly is the phenotype of that patient. But we have to look at also the pharmacokinetics of that specific product on that specific individual. So I think that treating as we, we did in the old days that maybe one, one, one treatment for all, I think that has really changed drastically. And we also have to take in consideration the physical activity of that individual and the joint status. There are different factors that I think we need to consider when personalizing prophylaxis in patients with hemophilia. As I mentioned, the bleeding phenotype is very important because I think we have a small proportion of patients with that are supposed to be severe patients and they might not have a much bleeding, but I think the majority of the patients with severe phenotype do have spontaneous bleeds. We need to take in consideration certainly the pharmacokinetics of that specific product. So look at the area under the curve, the peak, the trough, the half-life. And if it comes to the patient, we need to see, you know, what is the joint status? Because it, it might be very different to treat an individual that has normal joints or an individual that already has advanced arthropathy. We need to talk about, you know, take in consideration the activity type of this individual, the pattern of activities that they have also the age and the adherence as well that we're gonna be discussing, I think in more detail at the end of this presentation. Venous access certainly is an issue and also the timing of infusions, I think is also very important to take into account. Now I'd like to briefly mention uh, some data that got recently published and it's called the PROPEL study. This study examined PK guided prophylaxis uh, with an extended half-life product in patients that had severe hemophilia and they were actually targeting two different factor eight trough levels. One level was what they called a low trough level, keeping levels between one and 3% and the high trough level, keeping levels between eight and 12%. There was a total of 115 patients that were included in this study. What did they found? Well, they found that those individuals that, that cohort of group, the individuals that had high trough levels between eight and 12, had a much higher percentage of zero bleeds when they compare it to the lower trough levels. It was 62 versus 42%. So there was a big difference. Now they also found that the individuals that had a high trough level, again, between eight to 12%, had a lower mean total ABR, 3.6, sorry, 1.6 compared to 3.6 with the lower trough levels. And they also have a reduced mean spontaneous joint ABR. So I think this is probably expected, right? Because as I already mentioned, probably the higher the trough level that we maintain in our patients, the less likelihood of them having uh, especially spontaneous bleeding. 
No, there was an uh, an additional study that was done, a post hoc analysis from this same study. And here they looked at the ABR, but stratified by pre-study treatment regimen. They found is that total spontaneous spontaneous joint ABRs were lower again in the 8 to 12 arm versus the 1 to 3 percent arm regardless of the prophylactic treatment regimen and the ABR that they had before starting this study. Now they also look at the proportion of patients with zero bleeds and they found exactly the same that the group of individuals that were in the high trough level had that more uh, patients with zero bleeds. Now I'm going to briefly describe the non-factor therapies and I'm only going to talk about one product that has been approved so far. You guys are probably familiar with emisuzumab. This is a monoclonal antibody that mimics the uh, function of factor eight, um, you know, irrespectively if the patient has or not has an inhibitor. This is a molecule that is uh, specifically used for hemophilia A only. This antibody, what it does, it binds factor 10 with 9A, and again, it kind of mimics the function of factor 8. It can be administered subcutaneously, and it can be given once a week, every two weeks, or every four weeks. Now, there were four different studies uh, that, that were performed, what we call the HEAVEN studies. Um, and these were done in all, all ages. They were you know, done in the pediatric population uh, up to the age of one and in the adult population up to the age, I believe it was 77. And they took patients with and without inhibitors. There were some patients that underwent surgical procedures, um, but in general, uh, the entire population was tested. Now, when, we did, when they did the uh, PK profiles, again, for the pediatric group and for the adolescents and, and the older individuals, we see that uh, the trough emisuzumab concentrations certainly increase with loading doses until about the week five, because we usually do a loading dose for the first four weeks. And then the levels will maintain you know, pretty similar among the different studies. Um, with levels anywhere between 38 to 50 micrograms per milliliter in these individuals that were treated either once a week, every two weeks, or every four weeks. Uh, there was a total of 399 patients that were exposed or treated to emisusimab. The median age was about 28. And there was a large proportion of individuals in these studies actually that had target joints. 61% of those individuals had target joints. Now, in regards to the number of treated bleeds, you know, after week 24, you can see that more than 97% of the patients had three or less bleeds per treatment interval. Now, if we look at the ABR across all the HEAVEN studies, it was quite low. It was 1.4 for the entire study period. And the ABRs were over consecutive 24-week treatment intervals. Even the patients you know, that had inhibitors, as we know, these are individuals that usually have uh, many target joints, they have advanced, some of them, joint disease. You know, the overall ABR was quite low for these patients. So it was quite effective treatment. Now, in terms of the target joint resolution, there were a total of 226 evaluable patients with, that had more than one target joint at baseline and completed at least 52 weeks of treatment with emisuzumab. At baseline, there were a total of 530 target joints and 61% of the patients. And at the end of the study, so the target joints resolved in 95% of those patients. And target joint resolution was defined as less than two spontaneous or traumatic bleeding events in a 12-month period. Now, the patients that, uh, with zero target joint bleeds was equal to 89.4%. So again, a very efficacious treatment for this group of individuals. Now, uh, to finish here, in regards to safety, 
uh, and the studies uh, having one to four. I think um, our main concern was those individuals that develop thromboembolic events that were seen at the initi initiation of the studies. Uh, there were a few patients that developed thrombotic microangiopathy, and this was very early recognized that was related to the use of activated prothrombin complex when it was used for more than 24 hours and at high doses. After uh, there were some changes were made to the protocols and the patients did not receive any more activated prothrombin complexes, there were really no further thromboembolic events throughout the rest of the studies. So with this, I'd like to finalize uh, kind of the introduction uh, to hemophilia. I talked about, you know, the importance of prophylaxis that at this point should be the standard of care for patients with a severe phenotype. I discussed the extended half-life factor eight products and non-replacement products that are as effective as the standard half-life products. I also discussed um, the variability that there is among the patients when it comes to dosing and when it comes to the half-life of factor eight. And I still you know, make recommendations on trying to do more of a personalized type treatment for our patients with hemophilia A. So with this, I'd like now to invite uh, Dr. Young and Dr. Lessinger to join me to discuss how we can optimize prophylaxis to talk about quality of life and long-term therapy compliance with our patients with hemophilia A. So Dr. Young and Dr. Lesson, you know, I'd like to know in your clinical practice, how do you currently, you know, differentiate among available agents and create treatment plans, uh, you know, that certainly include the patient and, and the caregiver. So for example, Guy, let's say you get in your clinic a brand new three-year-old that comes with severe hemophilia A, is in a standard half-life factor eight, let's say two times a week, but still have, let's say, three bleeds in the last six months. You know, kind of walk us through what, how will you assess that patient and what will you look at to make a decision going forward, certainly in that discussion with, with the parents? Yeah, sure, Miguel. It's a really important question. Anytime I see a new patient, whether it's a brand new pup patient or a patient who's transferred to my center, like this three-year-old that you're um, um, speaking about, I think it's always important to have a sort of refresh about what treatment is the patient on, you know, the, the actual drug, the, the regimen, and how is it working? And then to discuss with the parents, I like to use, you know, shared decision-making, even if I'm not completely dogmatic about, you know, each aspect, but the whole, you know, process of shared decision-making is speaking to the parents about what options are there. Obviously, one option is always to stay on what you're on. If it's working, you can stay on what you're on, but it's important to review that. And then to discuss other options, even if it's working, to discuss other options with the family, to say, well, you know, there is this new drug or there's this other different drug. Here are the benefits of this one. Here are the benefits of that one. Here are the risks. Here are the risks. So discussing the pros and cons of the treatment the patient is currently on in comparison to the other options the patient has. And this way, you know, the patients and the parents of those patients have the breadth of the different choices and they can make the best choice for their patient. And the best choice for somebody who's on, you know, twice a week extended half-life factor eight, if they're not bleeding very much, could be just to stay on that. In the scenario you gave, the patient had three bleeds in the past six months, I think you said, or even if it was three bleeds in the past year, that's too many. We don't, we really don't accept more than, you know, maybe one bleed a year is acceptable to say we don't need to change anything, but anything more than that, we would want to consider some other options. Yeah, I think you bring an important point there is, you know, how much are we willing to tolerate uh, in terms of bleeding? Because I think, you know, it might be different from, you know, an adult, let's say, that has a lot of arthropathy versus maybe, you know, a child uh, how much are you really tolerating? And it seems like you're telling me that, you know, probably your goal is to have zero bleeds, I, I assume, or as close to that. Yes, I think absolutely there's going to be a difference between children 
and adults. And while I treat children and adults, I'm going to defer to Cindy to talk about the adults. Uh, certainly with young children, like a three-year-old, yeah, our goal really is zero bleeds. Because I think the, ob the obvious bleeds are really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, subclinical bleeding, or some people might call it microbleeding, surely that must happen. If a patient has one bleed in a year, I, I imagine they probably have had at least one or two or more, it's hard to know really, subclinical bleeds too. So the goal really is zero. And if the patient has zero bleeds a year, then they didn't necessarily have subclinical bleeding either. And I think what we saw in the joint outcome continuation study is that even for those patients on really effective prophylaxis, there was a deterioration in their joint disease, even those who started early. So, you know, we know that we have to really have a very low threshold for tolerance of any kind of bleed from a young age. Now, Cindy, let's say you have, you know, a 22-year-old comes with to your center, severe hemophilia A, has some myeloid arthropathy, let's say, of two joints, and is on prophylaxis, let's say, with an extended half-life factor eight that he takes intermittently, and he bleeds also, let's say, three times in the last six months. How would you approach this type of patient? So, you know, the way we would approach the patient is going to be you know, similar to what Guy said, I mean, obviously we want to sit down, first of all, and listen, you know, and hear what they're on, how they've been doing, um, you know, and kind of walk through with them what the different options are. And then, and then I think, especially with a 22-year-old who's just beginning to, to, you know, fully make decisions on their own, make their own treatment decisions, um, especially important in that age group, because, you know, in that late teen, early 20 group, we sometimes, you know, see patients who veer off a of prophylaxis for various reasons, um, especially maybe they get to college, they get busy doing other things, you know, and and they're not at home with their mom and dad. And so, you know, it, it so so there we have to really sit and listen and figure out what's most important to them. And, and here's where that, as Guy said, that shared decision making where you know, their personal goals, their beliefs, kind of what, what they want really comes into play. And we really try to sit and have that conversation. Obviously, you know, I will lay out the options and I will also kind of lay out what I think might be my recommendation or my, my you know, kind of prioritize those recommendations I think would be the most beneficial for the patient. But at the end of the day, we want, they need to you know, buy into this. They need to agree. They need to feel like this is something that matches what they want for their lifestyle. And, you know, activity level comes into play, right? How much, you know, are you just starting college and perhaps you're for the first time you've got access to a regular gym and you want to start working out? Um, or for some, for some guys, they go to college and they're like, well, you know, now I'm doing less sports than I did in high school. And so, now I'm much more sedentary. I spend more time in the library. And so, you know, again, we look at kind of where they are in, in their life journey and what's going to be most appropriate and then kind of review these options. Certainly, if they've had three bleeds in the last six months, um, you know, I even in a young adult, that's too many, especially if these are joint bleeds. And so, again, if these are joint bleeds, we're going to talk very seriously about what we can do better. And it may be an adherence problem. You know, maybe as we review their infusion logs or their records, we'll see where these bleeds are happening because perhaps they missed a dose, um, you know, or maybe not. I mean, maybe these these breakthrough bleeds are occurring um, despite good adherence. And so that's going to play a role, too, into what we recommend. If their adherence has not been very good, we're going to talk about what strategy might help improve their adherence. Okay. Yeah, those are very important points. And, and I think you brought uh, the the adherence point, but I want you to hold on to it because we're going to discuss it further. But um, I'd like to know is how, how do you really include, let's say, quality of life into your decision making? Because, you know, sometimes I I don't know if, if you know, we, we, we do include this part or not. I mean, maybe for the adult might be a little bit different than for the pediatric population. I just want to hear your opinion in terms of the of the quality of life, including in, in when you make that decision. So, Cindy, if you can give us your yeah, input. no, I mean, 
I think this has become extremely important, and I really like that the new World Federation guidelines kind of incorporate this concept into the, the recommendations regarding prophylaxis, that really quality of life is one of the goals now with prophylaxis. And so, um, really, I, I, I mean, there, you know, our, it's really a team event. I mean, the, we all discuss with patients, a social worker, nurse, physician, even our physical therapist, you know, we talk about what are your goals? What are you doing now? Just as I said, maybe maybe there is a desire to go, you know, now start in a soccer league on the weekends, you know, or I want to go, you know. So these are all important issues for quality of life. What is it that what is it that's important to you now at this point in your life? And um, whether it's a young patient or an older patient, right, who may be developing, you know, and I know we'll get to this, but maybe developing comorbidities where they need, you know, other medications and therapies, and we have to consider that. So, so it's really, again, I just kind of come back to this listening aspect of what we do, where we all, we ask what's important, where are you going? And, and we listen um, to what our patients are telling us. I think that's the key. Great. Um, how about you, Guy? What, how do you use the, the quality of life into your practice? Yeah, I think similar to Cindy, we rely upon our multidisciplinary colleagues. Um, physical therapists are really good at telling us how their physical quality of life is, mobility and uh, activity. Our social workers are really good at looking into, you know, school, which is obviously a big thing for children, but also how the household is functioning. Um, you know, we have families that both kids have hemophilia. Uh, we have families where one kid does and one doesn't, or two do and one doesn't. It's, uh, you know, both situations are challenging. Um, and so, um, you know, we have our social workers work with the families. We also have a psychologist on our team as well who can delve into areas that, you know, in a deeper way than the social worker can into psychological issues. So we definitely take a look at the sort of the whole patient uh, and really uh, in pediatrics, the whole family, too. So it's, it's part of the whole uh, group. I think an interesting thing is, you know, there's so much now about quality of life tools. And we see uh, in clinical trials uh, uh, quality of life um, as part of the uh, secondary outcome measures, and lots of quality, lots, excuse me, lots of quality of life papers are being um, published from you know uh, drug trials and, and, and other things. And I guess the question is, do we want to incorporate these tools you know, into our practice? I think these are these are very important points because as 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 you both mentioned, I think quality of life certainly has become more part of our standard of care. So now I, I like to now to get into a topic that I think is is it touches every single one of our patients. I, I, I have to say, and is adherence. You know, we know hemophilia is a chronic disease, and and like any chronic disease, like diabetes, like asthma. Uh, you know, it's, it's a burden for patients, uh, you know, to have to treat all their lives. How do you approach this, um, you know, this this kind of problem that, that we're still facing? Uh, if you want to start, Guy. Yeah, sure. So, you know, it, it definitely in, in, in the pediatric um, age group, of course, when we say pediatrics, we're talking about, you know, infants up to teenagers and, and things do change a lot. My experience is that the issues of adherence do follow what has been published, which is that in the younger years, adherence generally is, is very good. I mean, most parents are very diligent about ensuring that whatever treatment we prescribe, that they get those treatments. Um, as kids get to school age and they can start to resist things, uh, as time becomes really crunched, because we want to do prophylaxis in the morning, at least with factor, we want to do it in the morning. Um, it gets more challenging. And then once we get to the teenage years where we expect the patients to assume uh, independence and responsibility for their own care, um, it drops off even further. And, and then in young adulthood, it, it gets even more difficult, especially during the transitional time when kids are moving out of the house, going to college or getting jobs, and they're very sort of transient. Uh, the way we approach it is that, you know, there are patients who are exceptionally adherent uh, including teenagers. Uh, and, you know, so we don't spend a lot of energy on those. Oh, you're doing your factor or you're doing your emesizumab. Great. Yeah, no problem. And you kind of know they're doing it. Where we focus our energy is on that 
20% in the younger age group, perhaps, and 50 or 60% in the teenagers and young adults, where we have, you know, between nursing, social work, and psychology, um, we focus a lot of energy there. And essentially, you've already said it, you want to identify what is the barrier. Is the barrier venous access? Is the barrier time? Is the barrier forgetfulness? What actually, you know, really dig in and find out what for that patient is the barrier? Because the barrier for, we say teenagers don't adhere, which is true, but the barrier for one is different than the barrier for the other. If you can identify the barrier, you can then put a strategy together to try to improve that. It's challenging no matter what. We've had some successes. Oftentimes, even if you identify the barrier and a strategy to improve it, um, things don't necessarily get better. But I think that's the best you can do is focus your energy on those patients who really are having trouble with adherence, identify the barrier, use that to identify a strategy to overcome it. Okay, great. So Cindy, what do you think? Oh, you know, completely agree with Guy. Uh, you know, the um, it's, it's perhaps the most challenging uh, aspect of what we do in comprehensive care. Um, you know, because we can go through all the strategies of laying out the best therapy, making decisions with our patients and patients accepting those decisions, you know, and, 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 and write out and prescribe what, you know, what we believe will be the very best um, prophylaxis regimen for our patients. But, you know, if they don't adhere, um, then, then, you know, it's all pretty much um, for naught. I mean, uh, you know, because as we know, one or two joint bleeds can set up that progressive joint disease pattern that our patients have with irreversible joint disease being the result. Even, you know, as I said, it doesn't take many failures of prophylaxis to lead to a significant um uh, you know, undesired result, particularly with joint disease. And of course, you know, this is all part of, you know, the education of our patients and, and what we tell our patients. But I think Guy's absolutely right that when we see patients who are having lapses in adherence or, you know, so there are different ways to not, you know, some patients will just have lapses, like where they'll go for a period of time where they just get tired or whatever and they stop. Others who have, you know, periodic periodically miss doses for one reason or another. And, and I think trying to get to the bottom of what the, you know, what the challenges are for that given individual and, you know, whether it is venous access or whether it's time or they've taken a new job and they have to be at work at six in the morning. And, you know, it's just, um, it's really trying to find ways to help to make it easier for patients to adhere. I will add one sort of, I think, somber note, and that is that studies in adherence and chronic illness um, really show that the best predictor of future adherence is past adherence. And so when we have those patients, like I says, you know, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time motivating them. They're self-motivated. I think the larger challenges are with the other patients who maybe don't lack a little bit of that, you know, lack a little of that self-confidence or um, maybe have some mental health issues. I mean, we do know and it doesn't have to be clinical depression per se, but patients who have, um, who you know, maybe struggle with, um, it, it, you know, struggle with being overwhelmed or, or, you know, anxiety and other things that can be a barrier. And those are perhaps the hardest um, to help our patients with. But I think as Guy says, having a psychologist involved, social workers, you know, these are, it's really key. This is a theme again for our team. And even our physical therapist is often asking about adherence. And, and one of the things too that, that's helped us, I mean, we've also incorporated a clinical pharmacologist who, you know, can help, can kind of sit with patients and help them show them, you know, we show them PK modeling, like what happens with their factor and, you know, why it's important. And then our physical therapist does ultrasound of their joints and says, look, this is what a joint looks like when you have a bleed. And this is the difference. And, and actually, we found that that has helped motivate some of our patients um, to be a bit more adherent when, when they see what uh, joint disease starts to look like um, with, with a, you know, bedside ultrasound. So, so there's a, just a whole variety of approaches that we have to bring to bear. It's not no one thing. It's kind of everything. It's kind of a 360 with our patients. Yeah, no, those are very important points, and, and, and I fully agree. I think that this, I mean, certainly it needs to be addressed very early um, because, you know, many of the times, at least we see, you know, we end up kind of in a bargain with our patients, you know, and, and I think we have to do whatever it takes to, to get them. And, and, and I think that 
the adherence probably goes in hand with the quality of life. Um, like you were saying, you know, sometimes we have to ask him, you know, what is really your goal? What do you want? And how are you going to get there? You know, what is that quality of life that you're aiming to? But to be able to get there, you need to be adherent. Now, there's another point here that was that was brought up, and, and it, it was the mental health. I, I think that is something that, at least in my opinion, I think we might not be addressing fully. And actually, in our practice now, we we have put uh, some of we have one tool. Uh, to look for depression, actually, we had found uh, a couple of our individuals, a couple of our patients, that were not adhering. And we investigated further, we found they were, you know, severely depressed. So we are now using one of these scoring systems as part of our clinical history. And and every patient, we will do this assessment. And if there is, you know, depending on the score they have, we will then do, you know, a further investigation and and whatever management needs to be done. Because I think. That part of them, of the of the of the mental health also has could have a lot of impact on how our patients you know behave in regards to to the treatment. You know, wrapping it into your discussion earlier about you know newer treatments, you know non-factor therapies. You know, one that we you mentioned, emesizumab, that's on the market, and then eventually other ones in gene therapy. You know, this is where I think we have to start thinking about those therapies and how they link to adherence. So I had one case where, you know, venous access was the barrier. It was a teenager. He's like, I just don't like poking my veins. I don't let my mom poke my veins. I don't want to do that. It's painful. We miss the veins half the time. His barrier was that, I mean, he had, he could hit his veins. It just was painful and difficult. He just didn't like to do it. And so when emesizumab became available, we said, look, what about trying something a little bit different? There's no vein to hit. It's still a needle, but there's no vein to hit. And they wanted to try that. And interestingly, when he got on it, he did great uh, and was doing really well for a while. And then, of course, to Cindy's point about what predicts adherence is then he he was doing so well that, of course, he stopped giving his emesizumab. And then he showed up with his target joint bleed. And uh, but that was in a way a good lesson for him because he just didn't click that he needed to do the emesizumab every week like he did. And uh, so we had a long discussion with him. And we, and, and I, since then, it's about almost a year now that he actually has been in here. Um, so let me uh, we've talked a little bit about the extended half life and, and, and now with the non-replacement therapy with the emesizumab. So uh, briefly, I'd like to maybe. No, if you if you can share your opinion on, on on how will you decide maybe between one and the other if you have a patient that comes to your clinic, uh, you know I know that we usually you know we'll give them options of what's available, but but how do you you know envision that individual? You know, is it maybe an extended half life better for him or or, or maybe the the use of emesuzumab? Um, Cindy, how will you uh, maybe make that decision? I'll let guys speak about you know, doing this with children and and, um, infants and so forth. But in adults, um, you know, they're all coming with with some therapy that they've already been on and probably a lot of, you know, set ideas about what they like and what they don't like, et cetera. So, you know, it's but nevertheless, I mean, for every adult we see, we go over what what new options are there, what new treatments we even go over what's in the pipeline. So, you know, they they they've heard about it. Um, and so now we've got, you know, non-factor therapy and, and we have emesizumab. And so we review, you know, the advantages. Really, I, re- I, I go over advantages and disadvantages with both factor replacement and with emesizumab. And a lot of it, it, you know, it's very interesting. And then I listen, you know, I, I listen to what the patients are saying. And so um, it, and it's across the spectrum. So many of them are very eager to try a non-factor therapy with, you know, to avoid the IV infusions and the IV sticks. Uh, they like the convenience aspect of it. They like the fact that they have a kind of a steady state uh, protective level, um, somewhat protective level, right? It's not a normal hemostatic level of, of protection, but but it is much better than certainly severe or moderate um, baseline that the patient has. And so some really like that and they want to try it. Others are very happy with factor replacement, um, skittish about something new. Some want to wait a while and consider it later. So there's just, you know, as many individuals as we take care of, that's about how many different, um, discuss, you know, different, the, 
um, tones in those discussions um, based on the individual. And, uh, and, and so it's actually, I, I don't think these decisions, I don't think have been all that difficult for patients. It's once they know the information, we have discussion, um, you know, m many of them are pretty clear about their decisions and, and, um, and, and for the most part, you know, I agree with those. Thank you, Cindy. Guy? Where I have seen a lot of change in my practice is in those very youngest patients, uh, pups, or maybe not pure pups, but patients who've had very limited exposure to factor. So we're talking about one and two-year-olds. When we're really going to start prophylaxis for real, um, you know, if it hasn't been started earlier, that could be another discussion. But typically, prophylaxis is started at, at an early age, as you pointed out by the WFH guidelines, typically around the age of one, let's say one, one and a half. So now you've got a patient who, um, you know, you're, you're going to now initiate prophylaxis. And you have the choices of um, factor therapy, extended half-life or standard half-life, both given IV and both given, you know, multiple times a week, at least two. Uh, in these young children, uh, if not three, certainly by the extended half-life. Or you now have the option of a non-factor therapy. And so I will tell you, the conversation basically is like, well, you have a choice of an IV therapy. Most likely, we'll need to put in a central venous catheter called a port because it'll be otherwise very, very difficult to do it. The surgeon will place that. Your son will be under anesthesia. And then we'll do the factor, which you'll do two or three times a week, and you'll still have to use a needle to access the port. And you know, we explain all of these things that I'm sure the audience is familiar with in dosing pediatric patients with factor. And then you say, well, then there's this newer treatment. We don't have that much data on children as young as your child, which is true. In all the Haven trials, there are not many kids um, less than two. Um, you know, there are trials going on right now in that age group, but so far we don't have data. So I, I say we don't have the data, although the indication does include children from newborn and older, so you're not going off-label either. And you say, well, it's subcutaneous, so we don't have to do the port and don't have to do all the IVs. And it could be done, you know, pretty much every two weeks after the first four doses. That's our typical dosing regimen. So think about it, you know, if you're a parent or you're thinking about children and you're given like those options, I mean, it's almost, you know, I parents look at me like, uh, Dr. Young, I don't understand. What do you mean? This, this, this is not like a this is not really an option. I mean, obviously, we're going to choose the one where our son doesn't need to have surgery. Uh, we don't have to access needles through this thing that has a risk for infection. I mean, it almost becomes like a false choice. Like, how can you even compare the two? So it's an interesting discussion. And I will tell you that, you know, 80, 90 percent of the parents are choosing to go straight on to emicizumab, even if they got needed a dose or two of factor for bleeding with circumcision or something like that earlier in life. So, um, yeah, I, I, that the shift I've seen is, is now that we have this other option, one is so much easier, so much more convenient, doesn't involve surgery, doesn't involve the risk of having a port, or if you're not going to put a port in frequent venous access, um, yeah, most parents are choosing to go to emicizumab, and I think it's very understandable. Well, I think we've come to the end of this activity, and I really would like to thank Dr. Young and Dr. Lessinger for their input, and I'd like to thank the audience for their participation. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Genentech a member of the Roche Group. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.